Welcome to the Emerging Markets Growth Leaders Podcast with True. On this show, we speak with founders, investors, and industry leaders from exciting businesses across Asia Pacific, the Middle East, and Africa. We ask them to share their fascinating stories and invaluable market insights and experiences across e-commerce, fintech, and many other growth industries in some of the most fascinating locations in the world. My name is Sam Randall, and I am a partner at True Search, the world's leading executive search platform for technology and tech-enabled companies. Since our inception, we have helped tech startups throughout their growth phase from pre-seed to post-IPO in both developing and emerging markets. We have over 350 search professionals in offices spanning North America, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. This week on Emerging Markets Growth Leaders, I am thrilled to welcome CEO and co-founder of Lucy, Debbie Watkins. Debbie joins me to share her experiences in the early days of microfinance and social enterprise in Southeast Asia. We discuss how microfinance is impacting developing societies, some of the dangers for users, and also talk through the underrepresentation and lack of support for female entrepreneurs in financial services. We then discuss how Lucy will go about addressing this gap before finishing with the quick fire question round. Debbie, um, thank you very much for coming on the show today. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Really looking forward to, to, to getting into the, you know, Lucy and your, your background and, and everything really. But just wanted to start with how have you been, how have you been over the last sort of few months? How, is, uh, how, how have you been coping through, through, through sort of the winter months and lockdown? Well, we're quite fortunate being based in Singapore that it's always summer here, of course. So uh, that makes things a little bit more bearable. And, and Singapore's been coping very well with the pandemic due largely to very strict policies. Um, but it does mean that we're pretty much COVID free and life is pretty much as normal. So that helps a lot. We, we of course, everybody's still largely working from home and we've had to adapt to these new ways of working. But um, I think we've kind of got into a, a happy sort of medium now of, of how we manage those side of things. And I understand obviously you've, you've you sort of set Lucy up, I mean we'll go into the sort of big details of, the, of the, the company shortly, but you set Lucy up at the beginning of last year. So I can imagine it was a it was a fairly interesting time to start sort of launching a business. How, yes. how did you find that journey? Sort of? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that was kind of interesting. I have to say, I mean, I, I left my day job at the end of January and um, so it was actually a bigger adjustment for me, I have to say, to just sort of being on my own and working from home as a as a startup, whereas before I'd had my whole team around me. So that, that was a big adjustment. And with the um, great team that I've actually had helping to build out Lucy, they were really all over the place as well, geographically. Yeah, yeah. It just meant, unfortunately, you know, the, the intention of being at the, a big chunk of them were in Bali. And the intention was that I was going to go backwards and forwards every couple of months for us to have a in-person check-in, which, of course, didn't happen. But uh, we were quite fortunate, I think, that we were very much in build mode um, when everything kicked off with the COVID and um, that it hasn't really impacted our strategy because we're, of course, aiming to be a completely digital solution. Um, and if anything, I think it's actually increased the, the need for what we're doing. And I think sort of generally um, we've seen an increase in investment into the fintech. We've seen an increase in activity in the markets. Um, so, so yeah, I think the, the, the market definitely sort of um, sort of validates that. Um, now, I, I'd like to I'd like to, to sort of cast our eyes, but sort of backwards, and would love to hear your your journey, your journey to to Lucy. Um, I know we sort of 
briefly discussed this recently, but um, you have a fascinating journey. You've been to, through some really, really interesting sort of roles and countries and things. So would you would you mind perhaps giving us the, the backstory and, and, and sort of how you how you sort of got to this, this point? Yeah, so I'll try and keep it short. It is a it's quite a long story. <laughs> I could probably write a few books on it, but essentially up until the back end of the 90s, I was sort of Miss Corporate, really. Um, working in the city of London. I actually, for the last couple of years I was there, we were doing something that was quite groundbreaking at the time, which was e-cash on smart cards, um, which was very much ahead of its time. But I really very much was a, a corporate person. And then everything changed. The company that I was working for decided that they were going to pull the plug on what had been a very large experiment. And I contacted some friends who'd taken a year out to go traveling and said, hey, I think I might come and do a little bit of traveling. I've got three weeks in January. Where are you likely to be? And they said, mm, Cambodia. And I said, mm, where's that? And I went to the travel agent and the travel agent said, hmm, where's that? And so that, that kind of made it even more interesting. And just to kind of sort of give, set the scene a little bit, I actually did have to go to the salon and get my false nails removed before I went. Didn't own a backpack or anything along those lines. So I had to borrow everything. And the rest is kind of history. You know, I went the, as the sort of one of the sayings is you know that the the destination became the starting point really and what I saw and experienced during the time that I was traveling um, made me realize that there's a whole sort of parallel universe going on that I'd largely been shielded from and although I was supposed to initially go for three weeks I went back put my sort of affairs in a bit more order and then went off again for another year and then never went back and things just evolved from there, really. I started out by doing some voluntary work, got involved in doing consulting um, for ERP systems, which is something I had a lot of background with before. That involved sort of involved into more microfinance system consulting, which was quite related, um, and then got hired by more and more people. At the same time, I set up two small social enterprises, which was in Cambodia, early sort of 2000s, uh, one of which was a social enterprise tour operator, um, the aim of which was to provide skills, training and income generating opportunities to local people who'd been really badly affected by the Khmer Rouge genocide and the subsequent civil war. And as part of that, um, we started taking people to all different interesting places in the country that nobody else was going. It was quite groundbreaking at the time. I think the phrase social enterprise hadn't been invented at the time. So I spent a lot of time trying to explain to people what we were doing. And also this, during that period, um, I set up a, another small social enterprise which made home and fashion accessories from recycled plastic bags. And again, that was both of them really were actually seeing a problem and thinking about something that had a sound business model as a way to solve it, um, which is what, of course, we now call social enterprise. But that was something that really stuck with me, that, that we could actually recognize things that needed to be fixed and find ways to fix them that didn't involve handouts. And so this was something that kind of guided me through everything that I was doing after that, really. At what moment was it? What moment did you decide to 
that this was going to be a, a sort of a fork in, in in the road. This was going to actually be something that you you really lent into, because um, you know a lot of people go away for for a couple of weeks and they come back and they carry on with their they carry on mm. with their sort of previous life. But do, do do you remember? Was there a particular aha moment, or you know what was it that that really sort of ignited that spark? Yeah, I don't know that there was a particular moment other than arriving in Cambodia and going on the back of a motorbike from the airport down a road that was still unpaved and seeing just this whole hive of activity. And, and I think that was something that really struck me very early on was that people were busy. You know, everybody was busy. Uh, there weren't people just hanging around enjoying themselves like they had been when I was last in Antigua, for example, right? Everyone's looking at, they're kind of wheeling and dealing and moving and shaking and finding ways to generate an income for their family. And that was something I remember being really affected by was just how hard people were striving to be successful. I think that that and a combination of, of the weather. I've never been a cold weather person. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and with them, um, you know, sort of those early those early days of um, uh, of social enterprise that you, you were involved in, what were some of the, the challenges that you, you faced? And what was, you know, obviously it was before, as you say, before the, 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 the term was coined. Um, uh, so what, what were some of the challenges that you faced back in those days? Because I'd imagine that, you know, tech, tech infrastructure wouldn't be anywhere <laughs> close to um, what we have now, you know, sort of to access to information, all that sort of stuff. So, yes. And that, that was actually a big thing because, of course, being based in Cambodia, one of the things I decided very early on that we didn't want to just have like a little walk-in shop for backpackers. I wanted to sell to middle or upper income customers from around the world, which ultimately meant a website. And, you know, things like Wix didn't in, sort of exist back then. I found one tool that did pretty much what we needed and ended up building the whole of our initial website from an internet cafe in Bangkok. And the other key challenge, of course, was how do we accept payments? PayPal was very much in its infancy. The whole concept of booking and buying things online was still quite new. This is like 2001 or something. So we were one of the early stage PayPal customers and kind of got into all sorts of difficulties as a result of that. I, I decided to register as a, a business in the UK and therefore we had a bank account in the UK and the only way I could actually send transfer instructions to the bank in the UK was through fax and so I had to find a fax machine in Cambodia every time I wanted to send money. Just checking balances and so forth was a phone call. A phone call cost about two dollars per minute at the time it, you know Skype Skype wasn't there nothing else was there so it was it was all quite interesting and challenging and of course taking bookings and reassuring people that we were actually going to be there when they arrived so a lot of challenges around that side of things yeah definitely from the technology point of view and so and how did that I mean it sounds like you did that for a, for a while how did that go and sort of what, what what did that what did that then lead you well, the travel company, actually, we ran till 2011, so it was 10 years, although okay. what had happened was sort of as I got more involved in consulting for microfinance, it was, I was doing both things really part time. And during this time as well, early on, I met the man who was to become my husband. Um, and he was very much the people person. So he was the one that was leading tours and training guides, whereas I was running the business side of things. And we expanded actually into Laos, moved to Laos 
independently to get things up and running there and find suitable partners to work with and started in a small way looking at East Timor as well. But ultimately what happened, it all became a little bit too much to adequately manage on top of what was becoming much, much more consulting and advisory work that I was doing. And so we decided in 2011 that we would sell it um, to somebody who'd actually been um, one of our tour guides in Cambodia. So we decided that we would sell the business and, and kind of move on to other things. We then concentrated on the plastic bag side of things more. That became actually pretty successful, um, which was helped by the BBC deciding to make a documentary about it. So I, I actually do have my 10 minutes of fame. Um, it's still on, I think it's still on YouTube, but we, we were shortlisted for a BBC World Challenge Award, which involved them actually literally coming over from the UK and filming me for three days. So, and that, that was, I think, really made such a significant impact. I think we calculated that we'd cleared more than 2 million bags from the environment in addition to winning awards and and what we decided to do once we got local people up to speed on that we decided that we would actually hand that over to them and let them carry on with running the business it was so it was never intended to really be a big business making thing it was more just a response to a problem that we'd seen and we wanted to find some kind of self-sustaining way to to address the problem you mentioned you did a lot of um, sort of consulting work in microfinance. Um, yeah. Can you can you sort of describe to us the the the, the sort of the environment then? What, what how that sort of manifested in the market? How people sort of engaged with with that? Obviously, you know, lending is a hugely hugely sort of um, topical um, sort of area at the moment. Um, mm. And so, what 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 did the scene look like back then? How did it behave? And how how did sort of you know what was your sort of interactions with it? Well, when I started in Cambodia, that was where I actually first started. Primarily, I was focusing on helping microfinance institutions to implement um, technology platforms to run their loan portfolio management. And at the time, most of the microfinance institutions were pretty much NGOs. So they very much had a social mission rather than being what has now happened, which is that they're very much, they've got shareholders and they're very much business driven. You know, things have changed a lot um, since the beginning. Um, and so I did see that evolution. Um, part of it was due in Cambodia that they introduced different regulations, um, which was necessary, but it did mean that the microfinance institutions were putting themselves much more on a business kind of footing. And each country has been quite different. As I say, my focus was initially on the tech side of things, I think for the first five years, um, but I did get pulled in a lot in some other countries to advise on operational processes, good financial management, um, went and did a couple of audits in Surinian Thailand and some various assessments in Sierra Leone as well. So literally kind of all over the place. And I think in general, you know, the evolution has been pretty much across the board globally, that microfinance has become much more of a business now rather than what it yeah. used to be, what it was originally intended to be, which was very much a, a social um, objective, you know, where it started out yeah. with, with Muhammad Yunus. The, the intention was really to um, empower um, the bottom of the pyramid. And it's kind of gone, got a bit of mission drift, I would say, since that point. Yeah. 
I guess that changes the dynamic of how businesses sort of operate or, you know, organizations go around sort of microfinance. But do you think this is a, a sort of a, a, a bad thing? Is it a necessary evil? Is it a good thing? Because obviously with that level of profitability and uh, you then perhaps get a bit more investment and a bit more innovation to, into the, the space. So. Yeah, I think it, maybe it's six of one and half a dozen of the other. I think, you know, the, the investment has actually enabled microfinance institutions to extend credit to many, many more people. Um, you know, the key challenge has always been if you can, if you've got a license to do lending, but you don't have a license to take deposits, where do you get the money from to lend, right? So you need to get it from somewhere else. And that certainly brought much more loan capital to, capital to, the, to the lenders, which in a way has been a good thing. Of course, what we have seen is a number that have lost their way. Cambodia, unfortunately, is a good example of where things have been going quite badly wrong with salespeople for microfinance institutions now having targets and sort of hard selling credit to people that can't really afford it. We're seeing now the knock, knock on effect of that, which is over indebtedness, people having too many loans for too long a period of time and not having been adequately assessed for that. There have been some kind of responses that have been favorable in a number of areas, such as interest rate caps. I'd yeah. say that in some cases, those are good and in some cases not so good because where you've got good businesses, the interest rates are largely driven by the cost of acquiring and managing the customer. And if you bring yeah. the rate down to below a point that you can't adequately serve lots of small customers, what tends to happen is then that the MFIs to stay profitable in some kind of way, or at least to keep their heads above water, will focus on the bigger customers because they're cheaper overall to serve. And what happens is that the smaller ones who they were originally set up to serve in the first place end up having to go back to the loan sharks. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's very difficult. We're seeing all kinds of things happening. Um, technology, of course, has got such a huge potential here but I'd say in the right hands. And we've seen quite a lot of examples now in places like Kenya, classic example of technology in the wrong hands where you've got all these digital payday loans essentially, mm. which are being extended to people via mobile channels for no reason at extremely high rates mm. and people getting caught in this, this cycle um, of debt that they can't get themselves out of now. Yeah, it's a digital loan sharking almost, right? So it's well, it is actually that. Yeah, the the governor of the central bank of Kenya actually described these these digital lenders um, as essentially loan sharks dressed up in pretty apps, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So I think you know again, it, it's there's a huge potential here for technology to reduce the cost of delivery, not to maximise returns, right? I think. It, it's a balancing act here and it's keeping that line between being efficient and being responsible. And I think, you know, if, if that can be kind of cracked, then there's a huge potential there. Especially emerging markets where I think this, this is probably has the biggest, the biggest impact sort of relatively on the, on the, the communities. Do you think the, um, the potential lack of sophistication from the regulators leads to a, a situation where people are able to take more advantage of the of this um you know the underserved is that is that something that's that you're seeing mm, maybe to a certain degree 
Um, but I would say there's actually a lot that are just operating illegally. And when you've got everything in the cloud, sometimes it's really difficult to regulate. I mean, if you don't know where that company is based, but there have been a number of cases I've read about recently in India as well, where a lot of the apps that you can download to borrow money, there's no real indication as to where these companies are. Yeah. Right. So what people are actually okay. doing is circumventing regulations um, in so, that way. So I think that from the regulatory standpoint, they're kind of trying to plug all the holes and, and yeah. new holes keep sprouting, you know. What sort of recourse would they have if somebody defaulted on their loan if they're not, if, if they're <laughs> effectively an illegal sort of cloud-based sort of loan provider? Do they Shaming. have an operational sort of physical arm or something? Oh, okay, okay. Shaming. So what happens is, you know, <laughs> I spoke to someone a while about go about this and said well you know if somebody walked up to you in the street and said i'd like your entire contact list please you'd tell them where to go right yeah. if i walked up to you and said my name is pokemon go and i'd like your complete contact list then you'd say okay because that's what you do right you download the app it says we need access to x y and z you think yeah. you think it's for yeah. use by the app but it nowhere does it yeah. say that Right. So what happens is that they you doubt you're desperate for a loan. You download the app. It says, I'd like access to your messages, your contacts, your camera, et cetera, et cetera. You go accept, 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 accept. And then what happens is when you default, um, they start sending really horrible, threatening messages to everybody in your contact list. Um, there was a case about a week or so ago, again, of somebody that had committed suicide. Um, because they got stuck in a circle of digital loans in India and their mother-in-law had received a message um, and he couldn't deal with the shame of it. And so it's it kind of more through that, that, that shaming method. Yeah. That's the only way they've got. Okay. You know, okay. some of these people um, are charging a thousand percent per annum interest rate. Obviously, having sort of responsible businesses occupying a similar space will, will, mm -hmm. will, will help. Um, and obviously education, I would imagine, would, would help a lot, but it's such a new space. I guess there's, there's, it's, you need to educate the educators, I guess, at this point. But, you know, what do you see perhaps as the, as the, the, the next sort of, you know, the, the, the next step for this, this type of business? Well, I think regulation, insofar as it can be regulated, of course, is a, is a key aspect. Um, I do think yeah. that there's a lot of talk about financial literacy. I, I actually don't feel that most people are financially illiterate. I think they just don't have choices. So you know that this is a ridiculous interest rate and you're going to pay through the nose, but you're desperate. So you do it anyway, because you have no alternative. So I think, you know, one of the things that we're aiming for is to actually build a, a brand reputation as being somebody who's actually responsible in what we're doing and has actually got our customers best interests best interest at heart, but we're going to be doing that through running a sustainable business. And hopefully by becoming widespread enough, this will enable us to actually achieve what, what a lot of the digital lenders are, are failing to do right now. So I guess this brings us, you know, quite quite nicely to to to, to Lucy. Uh, I think we might have skipped a few years in in, 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 in sort of there, but um, um, but perhaps now would be a good time to, uh, you know, uh, you can tell us about Lucy. Yes, well, I mean, I can go back a few years and explain why Lucy yeah. is here. Um, so during yeah. during all the, the the sort of work that I did in all the various countries that I worked in, which I think is thirty five plus now, 
Um, one thing that I did see quite consistently was quite sort of restricted product offerings, I think you could say, from financial institutions. They're like, we offer a term loan and it's monthly and it's this, that and the other. We offer a savings account, etc. With a few exceptions, I would say, a lot of them really were very generic in what they were offering. And so the customer base was quite broad. So it could be everybody from farmers to shopkeepers to, to whatever, right? But the product was still the same. And the approach was, well, take it or leave it, right? And what happened was that people took it, even if it didn't really fit what they needed. And so a couple of things happened at various stages. I was talking at a conference in Kyrgyzstan, where you say, <laughs> um, yeah, but, yeah um, um, there was a very interesting speaker there. He was talking about the impact of the devaluing of the Russian ruble and how it was impacting people's ability to repay their loans, um, because most of them were very reliant on family members in Russia sending money home to Kyrgyzstan. What they found was that the number of defaults were less than expected. And what they found was, um, doing some research, that people were still very motivated to pay their microfinance or their bank loans, um, but the money wasn't coming in as regularly or as much. And so what people were doing in, avoid, in order to avoid being blacklisted was eating less. And in some cases, because they had a small business with irregular cash flows and the cash flows didn't match the repayment schedules, they were borrowing from the loan shark to pay the bank. So now they're paying twice and eating less, right? And it, this is just one example, but I'd seen this in a number of other places that there wasn't really much consideration for, from the people doing the lending as to whether the, the flow of the loan actually fitted the cash flows. And, and the kind of impact was the same. And it, say, it was very much like, we'll take it or leave it. And people said, we'll take it. And what happened was they repaid and they just got offered another loan. I did talk a number of times to financial institutions about this and said, well, you know, why don't you um, look at tailoring some of your products to fit cash flows more? And I was actually hired on a number of occasions to do what we call value proposition design, which is much more customer centric, kind of very immersive into customers' lives, pulling out information to understand what they really need, going in with no preconceived ideas to design products that fit, actually fit the customer's needs. Yeah. On more than one occasion, um, I actually had bank staff say, well, this is a lot of work being customer centric. Why do we need to do it? We're fine as we are. And you just saw this time and time again, right? And it did seem to be as well that if you look at percentage wise, the customer um, split, it was overwhelmingly male everywhere. Whereas if you went out into the markets, into the surrounding area, you saw the women that were working, right, running the little shops, farming, all sorts of things. But it seemed to be the men that were getting the loans, right? Um, and so it was just a kind of repeating pattern that I saw pretty much everywhere I went um, was a combination of hardworking, tough, motivated, tenacious women and blinkered 
financial institutions that served mainly men and just gave them kind of this vanilla flavored products all the time. So uh, a couple of, and then about three years ago, I guess, um, somebody connected me to, to Luke who became my co-founder. They said, oh, I think you should meet this guy. We were in the same office building um, and we had coffee and realized that we both felt the same about banks. And he'd been coming from a background of um, building apps, which um, he built the company into a, a sort of eight country, 300 person operation. But he said you know, the banks that he'd worked with building their digital banking front ends were just so inflexible. And he found the whole experience really frustrating and seen, obviously, you know, the neo banks coming in. He'd signed up for a, a TransferWise account and said, this is my bank now because it's so much of a nicer experience. And so... He also had been connected to Hal, my other co-founder, um, who at the time was CEO of a bank in Myanmar that he'd grown up from sort of very small to the fourth largest bank there. Um, he'd seen the same thing. The women that borrowed for him from him were the best payers consistently. But most of the rules were that, that women weren't allowed to own land in Myanmar and land was the only collateral they had. And so if they wanted to borrow for their business, they had to bring the husband with them. You know, it's kind of, and so it was a combination of all these things. And then we started seeing all the statistics coming in, you know. So a few things I like to quote, um, one of which is that if there was some research done by Harvard and Boston Consulting Group and so forth that showed, first of all, if women owned businesses had the same level of access to finance as male owned businesses, they would be two and a half times more profitable but they don't have the same level of access to finance, right? And just as an example here as well, that the total amount of investment in women-owned businesses globally in 2019 was $1.5 billion less than SoftBank invested in WeWork. Right? And, and it's just, you see statistics like this, right? There are more CEOs yeah. in the world named John than there are female CEOs. That's incredible. I mean, it's kind of one, one thing after another, right? Um, but yeah. what we also saw was that, you know, there, there are other things that really show that women tend, women who make profit in their business tend to put more of this back into the community, into health, into yeah. education, into their family. And therefore, what we realized was that empowering female-run businesses to succeed has a much bigger knock-on effect, which helps everybody, women and men. Yeah. I was um, speaking a, a year or so ago to a lady uh, in India um, uh, and she had run a microfinance business for for India uh, and it was lending to um, to female uh, female run small businesses yeah. and um, I think she said that the 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 default rates were orders of magnitude lower than than sort of any any other lending business there but i think because of the amounts that they were they were lending and i think I, it sounds like they were perhaps a little bit too early they, they just couldn't make it financially viable to run the business which is a big shame but i mean it's it's um yeah it's, again there are so many data points that uh, just to support this so yes and so i mean that's kind of really why we decided to do something about it we're all sat, sort of sat saying well this is wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and then we said why don't we do something? Um, and that's really how, that's really how Lucy came about. And so, I mean, where where do you start with? I mean, with a, you know, a problem statement that is, I guess, 
<laughs> globally encompassing um you know it there's so many there are so many different sort of things that need to be addressed where where do you start where do you start with something like this we i mean we we have to start somewhere obviously and in a manageable way and so the original intention yeah. was that we were going to look at southeast asia but run it sort of from singapore as a regional headquarters but one thing I realized actually that there were groups in Singapore that were underserved. Um, you know, the po popular perception of Singapore is that everybody's banked. Um, well, they are if you regard that as having a bank account. But if you look at having access to a full suite of responsibly priced financial services, then there are significant numbers of underbanked women. And so mm. I kind of said, well, why don't we look at starting in Singapore first? It's a good place to start. Um, you know, it's all very transparent and well regulated and quite an enabling environment. It's densely populated, it's small. Yeah. We could actually start by offering services to meet the particular needs of these groups um, and go from that point. So that's where we decided to start was by focusing on two distinct groups of women um, being foreign domestic workers or maids. Yeah. Um, and uh, micro entrepreneurs who a lot of whom are running their own small businesses from home and that we call homepreneurs. Um, yeah. Both of them have got quite unique sets of challenges when it comes to getting access to relevant kind of financial services. So we decided we'd start from there with the ultimate aim of moving out to the home countries of the foreign domestic workers um, by following the remittance flows and that's that's kind of phase two but phase one is is singapore okay and from a, a sort of service perspective what are you what, what's the sort of what are you offering at the start what does the, the service catalog look like and what are you sort of planning to build it out to okay well so in, initially what we did was we recognized um there's a very interesting dynamic with foreign domestic workers because they all live in their employers homes so they're kind of employees and kind of sort of family members as well. And there's a very weird close knit dynamic going on there where generally the employer would like to make sure that her helper is okay and isn't having any problems. And so what yeah. we see is a lot of cases where um, employers are actually lending money to their helpers to help them if there's some kind of family emergency back home, yeah. They need money in a hurry this could be just a small amount so they need 200 dollars, but they need it now and it's the middle of the month or it could be a larger amount maybe they need two thousand dollars because the roof has blown off the house in a cyclone for example either way there is there are challenges there for effective management of those loans and advances and that kind of social awkwardness often that comes with remembering to take loan repayments from salary and did I do it yeah. these all end up on bits of paper or the employers trying to remember these things in her head yeah. so what we decided as a first pass was to actually digitize that whole process to provide yeah. their helper with a, an account a fee-free account with a, a debit card from a MasterCard which they don't yeah. have right now um, at all yeah. but enable uh, what we call wage streaming and wage streaming in effect enables them to draw down on their salary on demand without needing any further permission up to the number of days they've worked so far this month so it's actually okay. not an advance right um yeah. 
today is the 26th. Prorated amount, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've earned 26 days of money, but if I go to my employer now and say, could I have $200, I somehow feel awkward when I shouldn't yeah. do because I've actually earned that money, right? So yeah. we're digitizing that whole process. It doesn't exist at all in Singapore at the moment. Um, we're also digitizing the, the longer term loans that the employer gives to the employee because, again, this is something gets written down on a piece of paper, put in a kitchen drawer, Somebody spills coffee on it. They forget to deduct it once one month. You know, all these things um, conspire to make it quite difficult to manage. So we're digitizing that process as well. We're also enabling what we call savings pockets. Um, this enables a helper, if they want to save towards a certain thing, they can create their own named little savings accounts with goals attached to them. And they'll be actually able then to see how far they progress towards their goal. Um, so it's the equivalent of what happens in developing countries where people have jars with labels on that are under the bed and this money is for the daughter's wedding and this is for the new roof and this is for the school or whatever it happens to be. But this is managing all of this digitally. Um, and the final thing that we're doing for the helpers is giving them low cost digital remittances. So that's transfer wise kind of pricing. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's really our phase one um, for um, the healthy micro entrepreneurs, um, we're providing uh, fee free business accounts. Um, at the moment, if you don't have above a certain balance all the time in your business yeah. account in Singapore, it can be quite expensive. Um, yeah. We're also offering low cost remittances if you want to pay suppliers or send money to people that you're contracting through Upwork or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, but what we've recognized there is that there's actually a broader range of challenges that many home-based entrepreneurs have, which is getting access to support. And this can be psychological support, it can be expertise, it can be sort of basic accounting information, it can be marketing guidelines, all these different things. When you're running your own small business from home, it's really difficult to get access to that kind of thing. I mean, what do you do? You yeah. Google it probably, yeah? yeah. Um, or you have to pay for it. Um, and the other thing that we recognized for home-based entrepreneurs is it's lonely. Um, yeah. You know, you're running this small business from the spare room. Um, you've got no real networking opportunities with people like you or people who maybe were like you five years ago and are now a level or two up that you could maybe learn something from. And so one of the things that we know, of course, as well, is that women like to help other women to be successful, particularly when it comes to business. And so what we're building there is a peer and mentoring support network that's integrated with the app to actually enable people to get access to the tools and general advice and support that they need, um, which kind of then complements um, the business banking. Uh, we will be intending to extend credit um, in the future, but that's very much a kind of phase two. Interesting. I was speaking to the CEO of a business in, in Abu Dhabi yesterday that was running a, uh, a small business account here. I would say there's a sort of slightly different challenges here. I think, that, you know, it can take anywhere between three and 12 months to open a business account in, in, in the Middle East. And so they were, they were, they were, you know, addressing a, a not dissimilar problem, but um, they were, 
also look, looking at sort of putting in accounting sort of you know, basic accounting sort of modules and things like that so it's mm -hmm. are, you, are you planning on sort of providing that sort of assistance as, as well yes i mean we're recognizing as well that say all the boring but necessary bits of running a business um are something that are kind of not available to many people um and so people are using spreadsheets or just keeping a pile of invoices in the corner and worrying about it when it's time but there there are also many opportunities there i mean one thing that we're seeing is that people can either if we give access to integrated small business accounting which is one thing that we're working on of course this makes things so much easier but but also let's say somebody doesn't want to do that by themselves they're happy to pay someone a couple of hours a month to do it how do they find somebody that can do a couple of hours a month sure. right on the other hand you've got someone who does freelance bookkeeping who's saying how can i advertise myself and i've got no idea what a website is and don't talk to me about google adwords and how do i find people that just need bookkeeping for a couple of hours a month and so this is where we see this this networking effect is actually connecting people together as well so that they can use each other's services as well as getting advice from each other how do um sort of women that are perhaps that don't fall into this group but are very interested in being involved with this group how can they get involved and how can they get on the platform could they could they take the the, the account as a almost like a you know a transfer wise type service? Oh, yes. is that something they can do so absolutely yes i mean i know it's that lucy is open to all women um so it's not just entrepreneurs so yes i mean if people would like to get involved and have a lucy account what we're doing is a we're going to be offering a a premium metal card um, for which we'll be sort of charging extra, but that also um, those contributions are going to be helping to kind of keep everything else really low cost um, for, for the broader segment. Um, in addition, ultimately what we want to do, um, and again, this is a little bit further down the line, is um, work together with investment funds um, to enable women who would like to, let's say, make a term deposit that could then be used to on-lend um, to our female entrepreneurs. This is something that we're talking to people at the moment. So, and this is well suited to people that have maybe got a couple of thousand dollars kicking around, but they don't have the risk appetite um, to actually be an angel investor and put all of that money in one company. And the idea would be that they can then invest in a fund, the fund is pulled together and lent through Lucy um, to female entrepreneurs so that it would be the same as a term deposit but people are getting more yeah. of a feeling that they're actually paying it forward contributions so that, yeah, that's yeah. something that we're kind of looking at as well right now a, uh, and of course if there are other women in general who have a have kind of experience that they want to share um you know we're kind of opening the doors here and saying if you're a successful entrepreneur and you'd like to contribute to the peer and mentoring platform and give advice to people who are asking for advice we're very much encouraging people that would like to do that you know people would like to post little messages of encouragement or they'd say yeah i can volunteer advice on basic bookkeeping or taxation or hr law or whatever um, we're saying please come and come and talk to us our door is very much open there because i think again this is the kind of thing that people need help on you know you're you're going to employ your first employee what do you have to do right so someone that's got five employees could advise on that of course or say or beyond that as well 
presume that you know when we talk about um, following the flow of remittance back to sort of foreign domestic workers sort of countries there's often there's a business at the end of that as well and I would imagine Absolutely. that the same set of principles that you're applying and here can you know that can follow and then be applied at that at that sort Definitely. of other end of the, of the approach. Yes and this is this is very much our, fa our phase two strategy um, what we're seeing is that the, the helper at the moment has often has their own little business at the other end that's being run by the sister, or maybe there's a little family business and she's helping to support it. There are a couple of challenges. One, that she's got no real visibility over what happens with the money at the other end, which is something that we're working on. But secondly, that ultimately given, if we can learn about that little business and what the revenue streams look like and what the remittance yeah. flows look like, we can actually assess that little business for credit. Yeah. Yeah, and that that's very much what we're looking to do. Um, we see the potential in that because it will be a business that by the data that we're gathering, we'll start, start to learn more about that small business. And that would help us to make sort of informed credit decisions and say yes, where the banks would say no. Operationally, sort of on the back end, are you, are you, are you sort of engaging... Um, sort of banks to provide a sort of a banking as a service kind of um, sort of back end so that you build you build on top of other financial services infrastructures and then you have partners in each different country and is that yes how, is that how yes basically yeah I mean and, and what's interesting of course is like the regulatory environment in each country is completely different so like Singapore for example we we can lend to businesses in Singapore without a license okay right um, other places that wouldn't be possible um, so let's say if we want to lend to consumers at the moment in Singapore, um, the, the licensing process has been closed for a number of years. So we couldn't get a money lending license. But if I went to the Philippines, it would cost me, I think, $35,000 to get a license. Right. So everywhere is different. What we're also yeah. seeing is that obviously the profile of our intended segments are different. Yeah. The, the existing banking infrastructure and the appetite for those banks to actually serve different markets are different as well. Yeah. But that is how we've designed our technology platform is that although the, the user interface and the products and so forth are all very consistent and loosey, yeah. at the back end, we can actually plug in through our APIs um, to a mixture of different banks in each country. Yeah. So, for example, I mean, when I was living in Jakarta, I was there for a couple of years. There were lots of banks who did not want to lend to this segment at all. Too much hassle, um, quote unquote, they didn't want these kind of people cluttering up their ATMs. I'm not joking. It was actually said to me once. Um, they would absolutely like the consolidated loan book. Yeah. yeah. Right. So this is what we can bring is we can say you don't have to serve the customers. We'll serve the customers. We'll do all the KYC. Here's how our credit scoring model works. We'll absorb the risk here um, and we'll connect you in at the back end. So effectively, we're using your license. So it's a kind of win-win or it's a win-win-win, really, because like the customer wins yeah. as well, of course, which is the main aim. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating seeing sort of um, the, where where fintech is really stepping in. You know, there was years ago, it was talking about fintech's going to kill banking. And I, I don't I don't think it, it necessarily will. But where where I'm seeing this this sort of fintech layer existing between sort of traditional financial services and then different customer segments that sort of historically couldn't 
you know, exactly, they didn't have the sort of tailored services or they didn't have the sort of um, access to financial services products. And now there's this, mm -hmm. this fintech layer of, of sort of, um, you know, payments, lending and sort of just understanding different customer segments. And it's, it's fascinating yeah. seeing how these different customer segments are now being addressed with businesses like Lucy, where there, you know, there is a large customer segment. It's, it's a very, it's a very, um, you know, uh, it's a very good customer segment. There's a, a lot of statistics to support a, a lot of reasons to, to to bring this this group into the financial services and yet still they haven't been brought in so it's 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 fascinating yeah. to see you know businesses like this really really coming together so. yeah and I say, I say I see you know the fact that we are focused on women as you said as well that you know they're pretty low risk when it comes to credit um statistically um and the the, the our focus is in really seeing the world through their eyes and understanding their lives so that we can actually ensure that what we're offering is really solving pain points and helping them to grow. You know, I think this is kind of the real, the sort of real strong value add that we're going to be bringing. Um, so the bank doesn't have to kind of do any of that, basically. You know, something that stood out for me a little while ago was a, an acceptance speech that Angelina Jolie gave. Um, and she said that it shouldn't really be her standing up there accepting that award for best actress. It should be um, a woman in rural Pakistan um, because she would have done a better job of playing that role. The only reason that she didn't play that role is that she's stuck in a rural village in Pakistan with no way of achieving her potential. I, I kind of kind of always think back to this and saying that there, there are probably so many women like this right that have haven't had the opportunity to actually shine right because because culture because circumstances because they're doing a job as an accounts assistant when actually they could be an architect or a web designer or a, a chef and it's a combination of say the culture the the access to finance the opportunity and and the belief in their capabilities because Historically, there's been this constant drip, 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 drip of women being told they haven't got what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And what we're wanting to do here is to say, well, they do, right? And they just need to find their own strengths and their own voice and to be empowered by a community to actually sort of take it forwards. And I think, you know, this is, this is our dream really is to enable women everywhere who've got that kick-ass entrepreneurial spirit to actually re realize their potential um so from from one incredibly serious topic to another um we're uh, moving on to the quick fire questions now um so um are you you're you happy with these and are you ready to ready to, yep. to answer these questions excellent thank you so first the first question is um what is the best advice that you've been given always look both ways when crossing the road <laughs> um, and the reason is that I kind of have spent so much time traveling and living in different countries where one minute you're driving on the left and the next minute you're driving on the right. And even when you do drive on the right, there are still people coming from the left on like lunatics on motorcycles, right? Um, I always look both ways regardless when I step off the pavement now. I, I was once in uh, Indonesia. I was in Jogjakarta with my family, and there was my, my wife. And we had two two small kids, and they were they were like 
one and three at that point and we're at this really really busy road and uh <laughs> and we were trying to cross it and this this indonesian guy this old indonesian guy must have taken pity on us because he basically he basically sort of beckoned us to follow him and then mm. sort of crossed the road stopping all the traffic as we went just so we could get across that was very nice so i yeah. I, I, <laughs> I hear where that's that's coming from um where is the first place you'll visit post-covid holland um my son my eldest son is there um in university and i haven't seen him for a year so um, that, that that would be definitely the first place what's your most obscure hobby <laughs> i like fixing things like okay. electrical things or okay. other things that involve hammers and screwdrivers and renovations soldering irons <laughs> yeah all of that i've i've got i've got my whole tool drawer um, and I just dabble in fixing, taking things to bits and fixing them with variable results, it has to be said. Um, <laughs> but um, and, and I'm, I've kind of also got another drawer of bits that I've taken off things before I've thrown them away because that bit might come in handy. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, odd strips of rubber and washers and so, screws and... When was, when, was the last time, when was the last time you went to that drawer and took something out of it to use on another project? Actually, because those recently. drawers are typically a one-way, one-way sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, <laughs> they, they normally are. But actually, I had an issue with the. I've got one of those little thing that goes on your bicycle, and you slot your smartphone into it, and the the bit that gripped around the bike frame was a bit too loose. And what I really needed was a piece of rubber that was bendy that I could put inside it to make it fit better. And I had a piece okay. of rubber. Excellent, excellent. Because I, I have a, a drawer a bit like that, and it's it's a it's a bit like a black hole. Sort of matter goes in, but never never comes out. So, what's uh, what's your favourite terrible management slogan? I thought about that a lot, and there are too many, so I can't really. Okay. I, there, there's just so many that are just completely cringeworthy, um, and I never use any of them. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. I'm not sure if nobody is right, but I think my view is that MBAs make you narcissistic and lacking in creativity or agility because you end up just having this overinflated belief in your self-importance and therefore they do more harm than good. Um, I've, I've just seen too many and, and I would kind of go as far to argue a lot of mainstream higher level education as well. I've, yeah. I've just seen too many people sort of coming out of Yale or something and thinking that this qualifies them to go around giving advice to other people about what needs to happen to make something a success. And, and you know, uh, as well that I've seen a lot now where formal education is kind of qualifying you to be able to remember things and regurgitate it at will rather than actually learning something. But for some reason, this seems to be valued more than a vocational qualification where you've actually learned how to do something. Um, it's a sort of the, um, the, the retention of knowledge as opposed to um, the ability to critically reason or, or sort of, you know. Or, yes, or I mean, and, and actually to see sort of things as they really are, not as the book says they should be. I was um, once interviewing a, a guy and I said, what do you want to do in three to five years? And he said, um, mm -hmm. well, I think I want to do an MBA because I don't think anybody in business will take me seriously unless I, I do an MBA. And so I, my response to that was, um, do you think nobody in business takes me seriously? Which I don't want the answer to that question from many people, but uh, <laughs> I think he sort of uh, realized, um, realized it was perhaps not the best, <laughs> the best thing to say yeah. in the interview. 
Yeah, you know, and as, as someone who left school at 16 and has worked actually full time ever since then, um, you know, I, I don't ask people about their qualifications when I'm interviewing. I don't actually make it a criteria on on job ads either for exactly this reason is that kind of, you know, I can understand if it's a, a doctor, right? You need them to have gone to medical school yeah. or a lawyer. Yeah. They need to have gone to law school, <laughs> right? But, you know, I mean, one of the things I quoted not so long ago was way, way, way back when I was sort of 21-ish or something. There was a guy in the IT company that I used to work for. He was a hardware engineer who thought he was better than everybody else in the company because he had a degree, um, except his degree was in biology. Right. But he still thought I'm a graduate, therefore I'm I'm kind of gonna I'm better than everybody else, you know. Um and I think there is unfortunately too much of that kind of attitude and point of view. Um and the last one, um what part of the future are you most excited by? Mm, I think I've got two answers on this. <clears throat> um one of which is flying cars. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. I kind of get quite excited about the potential for flying cars. And that's just because I really wanted to be in the RAF when I was younger. Um, um, but actually at the time, this is like when I was late leaving school at the time, they wouldn't let women be pilots, believe it or not. Okay. Yeah. So I've kind of got this frustrated thing of wanting to fly around. Um, but I think, you know, what the other thing that really excites me is you kind of see now somebody quoted this not so long ago and said, you know, we now hold in our hands with this phone a direct portal to all of the sources of knowledge ever, right? And yet, what do we use it for? Watching funny videos of cats, right? What what I'm seeing now is that the, the potential for the future is is through through this, right? Um, actually, that there's we can use it as a portal to close the gap between what we pay for things and what lower income people pay for things because lower income people pay more for exactly the same things. So I'm seeing that as, as smartphones become cheaper, um, internet access becomes more freely accessible and affordable. You know, this, this has this potential to broaden this portal into, into more things and actually to be more of a leveler um, when it comes to um, social impact. And I think that's the bit that really, and I think people are starting to recognize this now, but it's it's still got a long way to go. But I think that's the most exciting thing for me. Debbie, thank you. Thank you so much. That was, that was brilliant. Thank you for really, me. really enjoyed that. Some wonderful insights. Um, thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Emerging Markets Growth Leaders with me, Sam Randall. We are back again next week to speak with the Chief Product Officer of Talabat, Yi Wei Ong. I welcome Natalie Spree, True Search MENA lead, who will join me in a fascinating deep dive into product management. We talk about the overall discipline and how it has evolved over the last 10 years. We also cover how you might be able to get into product management if it's a career path that you desire, what founders need to take into consideration when hiring product leaders. What a lot of founders don't realize is that when you hire a product person, especially a good product person, you will be challenged a lot, a lot. And a lot of founders are not quite used to that because the last thing that you want to give up oftentimes is the decision on where to take the company or where to take the product. And the product is in essence, the company very, in very early days. 
I look forward to seeing you there. Stay safe and farewell. Thank you.